I'm Billy. I'm Drew. This is Pilot Club. So apologies for what I think is our longest break to date. A hiatus. So Drew, how, how have you been coping with our podcasting? Well, my life has been a bit of a sad and empty shell, yeah, really. It, it's, it, it makes you realise how much it, it's been a comforting part of our weekly routine. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, this is a special emergency. Yeah, exactly. Catch up, pre-Christmas. Pod. Exactly. Yeah, and we're releasing it on a... What, what day is it? It is Tuesday. <laughs> we're releasing it on a Tuesday. Um, but we'll get back to... Re- maybe we'll do another one early next week and then we'll get back to Thursday because we've got quite a bit that's that's coming out. There's, there's been a lot happening. It's been... It's, uh, Christmas rush, pre-Christmas rush. A lot of doing. <laughs> so do, do you want to kick us off with your honour? Absolutely. Thank you. So, Thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. My, my pleasure. So Your Honour is a, is a new TV show, quite a high-profile TV show, mm. that's being released um, in Australia through the Stan streaming service, and it stars Brian Cranston. Guess what, Billy? He breaks bad. <laughs> well, same thing you say that, because I think this is possibly, well, not probably, why don't I say possibly, definitely my favourite post-Breaking Bad Brian Cranston role. Well, I mean, it's probably his first one where he's actually broken bad again. Yes, exactly. I want to see a whole universe of Brian Cranston TV shows <laughs> exactly. where he breaks bad. Exactly. Maybe he plays a cleaner, you know, <laughs> a nurse. Yep, exactly. Uh, a National Park ranger. Every possible Every way. possible Every profession, possible way career bad, that you can yep, break bad. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to see an extended universe That's of great. Brian Cranston Breaking Bad. Totally. performances and I want to, I want to like freeze frame the moment the precise moment when he actually does break bad and then literally frame it <laughs> and literally and frame put it, it. In your house. that's right that's right so a bit of background to this show yep. your honor uh first thing to what? note you, oh, just sound like you called me your honor <laughs> no your honor okay uh so uh so well this is this is actually based on did you know an Israeli tv series oh really okay. called Evolve. Ah, have you? Are you familiar with this series, Billy? No. I'm what not. kind of cave have you been living I'm, in the last I'm six not months? With it, no. <laughs> okay. Well, it's it's an adaptation mm-hmm. of this uh, this Israeli series, mm-hmm. and it stars Brian Cranston, of course, the great Brian Cranston, as a judge mm-hmm. um, who's just one Brian, just one Brian, just one Brian, <laughs> just one Brian, who's confronting um, his own, I suppose, convictions and prejudices mm-hmm. when he discovers that his son is involved in mm-hmm. a hidden run mm-hmm. and. Twist, but I mean, this is not really a spoiler mm. because it happens within the first twenty minutes. Uh, the hidden run victim is actually the the son of a notorious New Orleans mobster. Now, just on that note, did you did you figure out the guy was a mobster at the beginning? Well, not, well, not at the no, beginning. No, okay. I think it was it was gradually meant to be revealed. I, I, yeah. I thought that was a really good twist. So, just you know, my perception of it is like you have a three act structure where you have this opening act where a whole lot of different mobile trajectories converge on a car crash. Middle act, the son coping with it. And you know, going to his father, who says you've got to you've got to go and tell the authorities. Third act, finding out that the victim was the son of a prominent New Orleans crime family. So I, th- I thought this was a really good twist at the yes. end. Yes, I thought it, it, it. Well, this actually wasn't even at the end. I think that well, that the, twist in, was in, in the third in, act. In about, yeah, the yeah, third, the third act, act of the, of the yeah. pilot. Yeah, but it, it really, it really kind of changed my perception of the drama and added a totally new level of and also I think moved it away from just being a grief drama yes so I thought this had the potential like it's interesting it's an interesting counterpoint to defending Jacob right yes because it has in some ways it has that same somber quality Mm. that same defeated you know miserable kind of tone to it the same palette but it's got a mobility and a kind of limberness that defending Jacob didn't have and Mm. I think bringing in that crime element and that almost like genre element prevents it just getting too lugubriously like I mean you know Brian Cranston is a widow the son is already feeling kind of alienated from his life you know it could easily just become an exercise in like grief yes and misery and you know navel gazing whereas that that crime twist at the end gives it such an ex- like it yes really, really vivifies that, revivifies it. that's the propulsive element yeah. to it and then i think that's what brings it probably closest to breaking bad yes where you have a series of you know impossible conundrums that Absolutely. how do you navigate between those two choices so and also just brian cranston in that role right of the father who has to protect kind of hearth and home yes that, you know and and who's faced with a with a domestic situation that he can't control. I mean, I thought the opening was such a great propulsive set piece too. So, you know, as I said earlier, it 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 basically all I knew about this series going on that starts with a hit and run. And there's all these different kind of trajectories in the first kind of twenty minutes or so: a motorbike, a guy in a car, various mm. adults jogging, that that all kind of sync up. But it's, 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 you don't know exactly when they're going to converge. And it, it gives it such an energy from the outset. Mm. I thought it made it mm. really watchable. And I think there is that the scene, the actual hidden run scene is is very, I think, exquisitely framed and shot. Oh, it's very suspenseful. Incredible. I was going to say, you know, I think we've got two series this week that in different ways 
show a kind of disaster or a crash really effectively. We'll get onto the wilds a sec with a plane crash. But I think, you know, it sounds like a morbid thing to say. This was one of the best cinematic or television depictions of a car crash yeah. I'd ever seen. Like yeah. just the way in which it happens, the aftermath, the shock, the way in which it affects the both characters' sense of time. Like it was incredible the way in which it played out. Yeah. And I, I think one one other, I suppose, aspect that elevates this show is its sense of place. Oh. And any any series that said or movie that said New Orleans, I am doubling down in. Ab- absolutely, and it's funny because from I didn't I couldn't tell right away it was in New Orleans. No. All I knew was that it was somewhere distinctive, and somewhere that felt different from where most American city uh, films and TV series are set, and also somewhere that was very heterogeneous. So you had yeah. a, a variety of di- very different landscapes in the opening, like yes. ma- like bayou, marsh, but then kind of old-school residential neighbourhoods. And, yeah, that just that sense of expansive space worked so well to capture this feeling of all these different stories intersecting at one critical moment. Definitely. It almost had like an ensemble drama feel. Yeah, I and think. I, think, I think one thing that we really made this believable in mm-hmm. some ways is that the... One of the dilemmas that the son faces is when he he's he goes to I suppose the, the equivalent of the projects mm. and his car almost breaks down. This is where the hit and run occurs, mm. and you really need to convey a sense of menace mm. as to why he wouldn't have reported this, mm. why he was fleeing the scene, mm. and there's a real sense of you know urban decay and mm. you know dilapidation mm. and, and menace here in this in the cityscape as well, which I think is is really really brought to the fore in this series as well. I agree quite it, elegantly. It, yeah, and. It's interesting, like, I had slightly mixed feelings about that, because that, that was the only point, basically, to fill in the listeners, um, he goes to revisit the site of his mother's crash, I think is what happens, and a gang kind of comes towards him and starts trailing him, and he has an asthma attack, all of which works really well, but he seems to forget his way out of where he is, and that, that was the only thing I didn't quite believe, like, if you knew how to get mm. there... And it was such a critical sight, traumatically. But I was prepared to let that go because, as you said, the sense of disorientation, the sense of him being out of his comfort zone is so is so kind of profound. It was funny, like, just two things this reminded me of really randomly. I know, you know, there aren't a lot of resemblances beyond a few points, but The Counselor, the Ridley Scott film, The Counselor. Yes, there's so a little th- of that. that sense of the, the way in which that whole film kind of converges around a motorbike accident, it reminded me a lot of the bonfire of the vanities as well, just because, mm. you know, how that opens with a car crash or a kind of a car accident that involves somebody who's in a, in a place they're not meant to yes. be and a whole lot of ramifications mm. spread out that mm. filter up through the highest levels of justice. So mm. it felt both those things kind of, you know, it reminded me of both of those things in, in a good way. Yeah. I thought. So I've got a couple of um, questions for you, Billy. Yep, yep. So first one is this. Um, what kind of parent buys their son a motorcycle for his 18th birthday? Well, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? So... That's the opening scene with the victim and the gangsters is this scene where the tone is really strange. So we're introduced to this family and the family on the one hand are presented as this lovable, endearing, jocular kind of family. But there's also something a bit douchey and a bit insular and a bit self-satisfied about their rapport. And I I was really uncertain. I was like, how are we meant to be positioned with respect to this family? Because Mm. on the one hand, you know, and the motorbike gift is a part of that, right? So when the, the father gives... The kid who turns out. So maybe you should clarify. Um, son of Brian Cranston driving the car. Son of gangster driving the motorbike gets hit by the car while Brian Cranston's son is looking for his puffer. You know, complications ensue. Yeah. So that scene where he's given the motorbike is such a weird scene. I was like, this mm. family seems to be positioned sympathetically, but also for us to feel a certain contempt and distance from them. Something's wrong. So then then it made sense for us. Like, okay, the son's sympathetic because he's a victim, but the family will become less sympathetic because they're going to resort to gangster tactics for revenge. It was a really weird... It was a re- the, the, the motorbike captured the motorbike gift captured everything that was kind of off awry about the way that family was characterised. Yeah, so I think I think maybe that's explicable. It's okay, the, my second question. Excess, excess. Yeah. It's an excess yeah. thing. It's like it's like a status symbol. He gives him the motorbike, you sure. know, as, as a flex. My second question, mm. Billy, is Brian Cranston a good judge before he breaks bad? I thought he was doing a little bit too much Mockingbird. I thought there was, a, there was a bit of a Gregory Peck, Atticus Finch thing going on, but that could make it even more. At the end, you get a glimpse of Heisenberg. It doesn't seem like he's very impartial no. as a judge, does it? Oh, I said a flashback. No, the scene where he kind of interrogates the police he crossing, officer. That cross-examines the police officer. It's like, like friggin' Henry Fonda and young Mr. Lincoln. Oh, that, that's hilarious. Yeah. He, does, he goes to the, the yeah. scene of the crime yeah. and yeah, yeah. does first-hand investigation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
he, he gives a kind of liberal diatribe on yep. the stand. Yep. I think maybe this, this, <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be grounds for overturning this decision. Yep. Yeah, he, he plays a kind of kindly, fatherly, charismatic judge of yore who just kind of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's, um, that is a pretty silly scene, I have to say. That, that is a silly scene. And... But I think that could make it more fun when he becomes Heisenberg. Mm, that's it, true. You do glimpse Heisenberg. You do. That's what you, you want do. to frame. That's what you want <laughs> yeah. to frame on your wall. And Breaking Bad was so good. I mean, yeah. we can we can deal with you know minor you know B grade versions of that and still have you know enormous enjoyment. And exactly. It. And in terms of what you said about the BB extended universe, like maybe <laughs> the best thing for Brian Cranston are roles that I mean he he he's good at playing a type now. Yeah. So play that type. Just, just with, keep Breaking with, Bad. With flexibility. Just keep, just keep it. Keep it up. Just keep doing it. Keep it up. Keep um, it up. My next question is, yeah. what is a dirty carbonara and would you want to have one? This, I, I wrote this down in my notes. I wrote this down in my notes. This, this, was, this jumped out at me from like, this was like the thing that was most, like most on my mind for like days after yeah. the episode. Would you accept it? Would you eat Abs- a dirty carbonara? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you reckon's in there that makes it dirty? I, I reckon whatever it is, like, you know how, like, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't drink, but the closest I've ever had to what I think a hangover feels like is after a massive night on the carbonara. You know that feeling that it cuts? So I feel like the dirty carbonara will just make that hangover even more intense. I know, like, the dirty... I, I, that, that, was, that was huge for me. I kept on thinking about that. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Like, the whole series has such a has such a sombre kind of vibe, but then there are those little touches like the dirty carbonara that really enliven it. Yeah. Like it I wondered if this was part of like the New Orleans post-traumatic canon. So there's a sense of like collective mourning, collective anxiety, but kind of resilience. Like the characters are kind of going about their business, going about their behaviours yeah, as I they think, normally would. I think to their credit, I mean, it does... That was a pretty awkward segue, but I just wanted to say it was a New Orleans post-traumatic test. I thought that was a good hot take. There was no connection there. We can, we can move back to the carbonara if you want. I just wanted to say that. No, that's all good. Mm, that's all good. It's about New Orleans. <laughs> it's all about New Orleans. So uh, next question. Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, fan... <laughs> Stan, um, or somewhere, somewhere in between. What do you think of the classic Stuhlbargian moment? Yeah, what, which Stuhlbargian moment are you thinking of specifically? <laughs> so Michael Stuhlbarg plays the gangster. I was going to ask you, who is he? I recognise him. Yeah, What's so he he's from? famous for his monologue in Call Me By Your Name, uh, A Serious Man. Oh, the father. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, oh, yeah. of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, Did you enjoy the various Stuhlbargian moments in this, yeah, yeah. In this series? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was post Stuhlbargian. I think he was taking what's made the Stuhlbargian, you know, mode so distinctive and kind of inverting it. Okay. And in that way, deconstructing it. <laughs> okay. Mm. And uh, Brian Cranston's. I, 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 yeah. I liked it. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. You, you got real. Yeah. Flip, flip the switch on yeah, that. Yeah, I broke bad. Uh, <laughs> one question uh, Brian Cranston's mm-hmm. best friend, the oh shit guy. Oh, from yeah. Clay Davis. Clay Davis, yeah. Is, is, is yeah. he just playing Clay Davis in every series now? <laughs> Give it to me. Like he's he's because it's exactly the same sub subplot to the point where it's almost like it's a derivative. <laughs> he's just playing hey, like a counselor. Give account? me give me the best of. He's great. You know, yeah, yeah, combine yeah. them in. Uh, uh, I suppose yeah. It's this this Breaking Bad, you know, the Wire extended universe. Just throw it all in for me. Yeah, I, I like it. I'm enjoying it. I guess with that and Brett Cranken, it's like a, it's like a best. It's a dirty carbonara of a TV series. Exactly, it's a best of quality television. <laughs> it's like just yeah, the be- yeah. I think this is definitely another clear case of post quality television yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, but I think all the better for it. I enjoyed it more when yeah, it and became, you know, more more just just twisty and pulpy. And it's an example of how like. How to do post-quality television well without that kind of really sententious seriousness. I mean, I also thought this worked really well as a pilot. Yes. I guess that, like, we often just talk about what we like and dislike, but, you know, we often, I'm really, we often don't evaluate it as a pilot. And as a pilot, I thought this was great. Like, it had a classic three-act structure, mm. had a really good opening, really good complication, a great twist. It set everything up for, like, it was exactly the kind of pilot that made me want to watch more. Definitely. And made me curious to see where it went. So I thought it was like... You know, in that sense, it was quite old school, and that it didn't it didn't withhold stuff from you, or didn't didn't assume that you were going to automatically watch your ten episodes or whatever. I thought, as, in terms of the form, it worked really That's well. That's true. I think yeah. it could have worked almost as a self contained yep. movie in yeah. some ways. And it really, like, you know, that kind of that feeling that old school feeling of the pilot, like I have to watch more. Yeah. Like it, it, that that twist at the end was so compulsive. Mm. I was like, this is yeah. I thought it was great. So this so, this yeah. is a, a series that hasn't received great critical reviews. Mm. 40% on Rotten Tomatoes, and yet its audience score, 81%. And that's so telling, isn't it? I mean, I think mm. we've talked about this. I think Rotten Tomatoes, at the bottom and top end, it tends to exaggerate stuff, you know, mm. in, in, in a quite a kind of deceptive way in terms of quality. So 
I would go with the audience scores here. Like, mm. I think that's a, a better... I mean, you know, I think often television critics seem sceptical of entertainment, mm. especially in this post-quality era. They feel, seem sceptical of anything that seems too close to genre or anything that seems too pulpy, as yes. you said. So there's maybe there's something a little bit alarming for a certain kind of television critic at seeing these two bastions of quality television, The Wire and Brian. And maybe and, and a slight, slight hint of derivativeness as well exactly. is, is frowned upon. Derivativity. But, uh, <laughs> but I think... For this case, in this case, you know, Liam Neeson plays a stock type, but he plays it so well. You know, why not Brian Cranston? It was only a matter of time before you brought in <laughs> Liam Neeson. It was always going to happen. It was always going to happen. I have a very particular set of acting skills. No, I agree. But I agree. It's, it's, I mean, I think this is something, this is the kind of consensus we're coming to together that, you know, for someone like Brian Cranston, who's so identified with a role, and to some extent with a guy who plays Clay Davis, um, yeah, working within that, mm. working within that persona in a flexible way is in some ways... I mean, if you try and depart from it and try and revise it and try and puncture it, you're still affirming it. Yes. You know, you're still affirming it as what defines you. So why not work within it flexibly? Yes. And I think he's really endearing in that role. Uh, he I is, really, he And, is. you know, in a way, Malcolm in the Middle was a similar thing. Like, he's good at the flustered father. Yes. The father who's trying to keep a hold on things, whether comically or dramatically. Yes. And I think um, the most compelling scenes for me, at least, were the ones where he was playing the Breaking Bad archetype in some ways. Like the, the, the scene where uh, he... The, the police officer is sort of sort of pseudo interrogating him about the the vehicle how it went missing yes. and and he simultaneously plays like a kind of quite a sentimental folksy character absolutely but at the same time he's just out and out lying and, and scrambling to and, lie as well and that reminds you too something I thought worked so well about this in terms of pilot it was full of Easter eggs so full mm. of just great little things that could become whole plot points later on like this is a little yeah. thing where um when the son drives out the neighbour sees him yes. and then sees him come home. Just like full of just rich with details like that, like that interrogation scene you're talking about, which just are so tantalising in terms of what's going to come later mm. on down the track. Mm. So I, I'm looking forward to this. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm unequivocally in on I'm this. I'm a hardy too. And it's funny, like I, I expected it to be more like a kind of a defending Jacob, serious, sententious, but it, it mm. gets... I mean, it's, it's charismatic. That's yeah. a big difference. I mean, neither Chris Evans nor Michelle Dockery, they were anti, the charismatic black hole. Yeah. Charismatic event horizon. Whereas yeah. this was like, yeah, so I'm a hard in. I loved it. So verdict? Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to our next show of the week. We're going to be doing a show that's got a lot of buzz at the moment called The Wilds. Mm-hmm. And basically The Wilds is a, a survival drama. So it's created by Sarah Stryker. It's on Amazon Prime. It's about 10 girls who are en route to Hawaii, going to a, a program called the Dawn of Eve program, which is about female empowerment. And they're playing crashes and they're stranded on an island. And basically they have to survive. And it's it's it intercuts um, kind of, I guess, three different narrative elements. Them on the island and the events that led up to the island, flashbacks to their lives before the island, um, which I think we'll probably recall or kind of follow the same lines as, say, Orange is a New Black, that kind of, you know, episode-by-episode flashback structure rotating between characters. There's 10 episodes and 10 characters. Um, and a kind of interrogation narrative that frames it all. And another... The interrogation narrative is bound up with a twist we'll talk about in a bit. Look, this this was a pilot, Drew, where my perception of it really changed as I watched it. So... At the, you know, I love the premise. At the beginning, I found the girls quite irritating. Like, I thought there was a really dour, sulky vibe. Oh, yeah. I thought there was, there was a lot of angsty attitude. I mean, it was a similar mood to 13 Reasons Why. And I don't yes. think that teen dramas have to be like that. So, uh, you know, it, it, I love it, the main character says that, you know, that she's interrogated. Don't refer by to my it. devastation as a funk. <laughs> There's, I think that's, that's sort of explicable because, you know, that's, yeah. you know, yeah. playing up to your parents. But in the interrogation room with the, the police and mm. the police, I'll say, you know, I understand there's a grief counselor there. And he mm. says, I understand that, you know, this experience being, you know, involved in a plane crash and being stranded you know for ages on a desert island would be traumatic and she's like don't say that my life as a teenager is traumatic exactly exactly so and And i thought hot out i'm out baby so that's kind of that's the end of drew yeah yeah so i i kind of felt the way at the beginning too and like you know you know, as we talked about watching Scream last week, shows like American. <laughs> That's why I pressed the dump button. <laughs> yeah, right. So I mean, I'm interesting. Did you did you did you change? Because I, I I felt that for the first 20 minutes or so, I just thought, oh, like, and also, you know, all the girls are obviously fairly privileged in it. Like, they could, their parents can all afford to send them to like a one week empowerment seminar yeah. in Hawaii. So they are awful. I thought they are awful. I thought it was a weirdly a weirdly 
unsympathetic. I mean, you know, you've got an opportunity here to have ten. If any characters deserved to be stranded on a desert island as kind of a kind of experiment, I think these would probably well, be the, the, I'm the not harsh sure, I'm not sure I want to go that far. But um, you know, it's funny you have, you have this opportunity to have, you know, a, an all female cast basically. You know, ten teenage girls, like, you know, great opportunities for character development, for individuation. Mm. And instead, there was a kind of uniform sulk, which I yeah, think was, was a, like... It was a real sulkiness. For, for a show that was about female empowerment and survival, I thought was actually quite a, a waste of opportunity. And like I said, you know, teen dramas don't have to be like that. So mm. two of my, you know, favourite teen dramas of the last five or six years, I'm thinking about American Vandal, and I'm also thinking about um, Scream, which have, have terrific female characters. And so it's funny, like, theoretically mm. I was on board... But I was really... Yeah. I mean, teenage girls are a lot of things. You know, they, they're really funny. They've got really strong interests. They've got... There's, there's more than just, you know, a sulkiness, sulkiness. to them. And, you know? and something that I thought was strange... I mean, we'll get on to what I liked about it in a bit. But something that was really strange is um, the main character has a whole lot of flashbacks to her time when she was, um, you know, like when she was back at home before the crash. And she Sarah has, Pigeon. Yes, Sarah Pigeon. That's it, Sarah, <laughs> the Pigeon Cannon. I wonder if she's right to Rebecca Pigeon. Interesting. She looks a bit like Rebecca Pitt, like David, Pigeon, David, David Mamet's. That's interesting because I'm just thinking like Shashaya Mamet. Anyway, um, yeah. So like you know, there, there's this, there's this. Con- the main flashback narrative in this first episode is one of the girls thinking about a relationship she had with a writer. Yes, and it was funny. Like this is presented as a kind of a lost love or a lost romantic opportunity, whereas this guy seemed to me like the biggest kind of douchebag toxic masculinity wrapped up in literary courtship like wrapped it, up in predator yeah exactly and and, and, and it, you know her relationship with him has a kind of john green kind of quality it's like something yeah. from a john green book you know it's not it's it's not it's john green's better than this but you know on the one hand you have this really sulky vibe when all the girls are on the island but on the other hand the only romantic leader only romantic figure is this kind of idiot literary kind of douchebag so mm. Those two things combined for the first half meant that I found I found it quite unsympathetic and in its own way, you know, not to be all edgy, edgy, but like a bit misogynist. Like, can't we write a story about ten girls without them sulking the whole time? Yeah, like, can't we write I, something? I think that's right. Like, I think this, is in, in some ways, is like an anti-feminist text. Yeah, I mean, yeah, every single girl is so unlikable, so universally unlikable, and just just a collection of their own pathologies. I mean, I'm thinking about you know family friends who've got teenage daughters and relatives in my family. I mean, I'm pretty sure if all of them got shipwrecked on the desert island, they wouldn't spend they wouldn't spend the time wrangling like these. Yeah, you know? no, exactly. So it's kind of funny. I mean, I wonder whether that attitude. I mean, this seems to me like a classic example of like you know, there's a certain kind of survival story where the fantasy is of being off the grid, right? Mm. And like, what would it take to be off the grid? And those stories are nearly always kind of about the intractability of the grid. So you think you've gone off the grid, but the grid's even stronger, mm. or the grid is you. The grid is is. And I guess what I what I felt the series was going for was. You know, that idea combined with the fact that nobody is on the grid as much as teenage girls in terms of social media. So I I wondered whether this was, you know, although it's a survival series, it's actually a descent in a series like Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars, where you have, you know, the whole series is about somebody or a situation that appears to be off grid, but actually reiterates how inescapable the grid actually is. Did Pretty Little Liars, was that on an island? Neither on an island, but they're they're both stories about... You know, predominantly female casts who were created with a situation where they seem to be away from, like they've they've got to negotiate or navigate a space that seems exempt from social media, but in in a way that makes them realise how intractable social media actually is from their lives. Mm. So I, I felt like this was kind of like an extent because when they get to the island, like there are a few survival exercises on the island, but the the main issue on the island is being able to sell cell service. I mean, that's this, right. This is like the first survival series I've seen that's post. Smartphone. It's, it's, that, that you can actually access a signal in an yeah, isolated desert island exactly. and actually decide exactly. you know, who to make your one sort of prison call to. Exactly. And and all the survival tactics are kind of reimagined in terms of the smartphone. So they, they bury a smartphone in sand to make sure it dries out. So, I mean, that's all around about way of saying that attitude that it has, mm. that the attitude the series has, reminds me of shows like Gossip Girl and shows like you know um, Pretty Little Liars, where the attitude partly comes from the anxiety of, of never being kind of off-grid. Well, I think your your analogy to um, 
13 Reasons Why was quite apt. I think that, yeah, tonally, I think it, it reminded... Uh, what, uh, I'll come at one, All I'll say is that it made sense at the end, right? Like, the whole series, I was thinking, they seem to be so off-grid, they must be even deeper in the grid. So it makes sense when the whole thing seems to be a social media experiment. Well, or, or a... Maybe uh, this is part of the... The, the actual, the, the, the actual training, the this, empowerment this, this training. actually is the empowerment yeah. training, but in yeah. both cases, so but yeah, tonally very reminiscent of yeah. thirteen and reasons why. In a similar way, they're just characters who have you know minor life hurdles, blowing mm. them up into you know enormous you know grief grief strewn you know melodrama. Which, it's, it's an incredibly melodramatic. Which is funny because one of the things you know I think we both like about you know a great high school series is the way it indulges in melodrama and extravagance and flamboyance, but. It's the dourness mm. that goes with it here that, and in 13 Reasons Why that just gets me. Like, it's such a dour, drab... And like I said, you know, it sounds like a bit of an edgy hot take, but kind of misogynist. Like, can't we have a friggin' series about teenage girls who aren't just bitching and sulking mm. and catfighting mm. with each other? And what's interesting as well is normally these desert island, you know, survivalist dramas are, are, lit, are lit quite brightly. You know, yes. the, the, the island itself is sort of, you know, a tropical paradise. But here, in keeping with that, that mood, this is a very black, bleak, windswept island. It's actually shot in New Zealand. Yeah, right. Uh, believe it or not. But very tonally one note, I found. I, I wonder too whether, I mean, that it, it has that kind of lighting I associate, like say with David Fincher, where like it never, never like, like quite feels like day or night. It's mm. in this weird kind of luminous, you know, crepuscular space in between. And that, that to me is like a space I associate with social media. It's like in, a, in an omniscient, in a world of omniscient social media. It's like Michael Mann too. It's never quite light. It's mm. never quite dark. So it feels like they're in a space that's totally suffused with social media. Again, even though they appear to be off grid. So it's, that makes sense. Like, yeah, totally. It's like it's like thirteen reasons why meets Gossip Girl. Like, it's of you know, although Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars are kind of about surviving social media. Sure, and it feels like that's part of the lesson that's going to ultimately be unfolded here. So wh- why did you come around? I think I came around because I kind of I like that social media twist. I thought that it got a little bit more varied tonally in the second half when it moved away from flashbacks. And I thought that the tone in the second half felt kind of emergent. Like in the first half, I thought it felt very consistently sulky and consistently drab, whereas in the second half, it took on a bit more of a provisional quality and it just opened up Mm. a bit of breeze bit. And there were a few things that were quite intriguing, like the girl who dies immediately, like surely that can't be real. The, mm. the Rachel Griffith character who seems to be orchestrating the whole thing from afar was interesting. I did kind of attach it to the topography of the island. What, what I what I would be concerned about is like, I hope the whole thing isn't continually intercut with flashbacks. It is. Yeah, I, I think Every that's episode what is, episode. I think, structure yeah. around a character and I, their, I, the I, trauma or grief that brought them to this situation. I guess what I mean is I hope it's, it's not too, too in your face. I mean, you know, in terms of trauma and grief too, like, you know, it does bear mentioning that, you know, one thing all the, all the people in the series really share is privilege. Like, you know, they, they all must be pretty rich to be going to this... Well, know, I think there's a suggestion that a, the, a um, the Shelby character yeah. is perhaps less affluent than okay. she she first appears. Okay. So she might be sort of passing for a different class. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, like, you know, privilege shame there. It just... It all feels a bit insular. Yes. The kind of vibe of it all feels a bit insular. I mean... I. I just, I think for me at least, like I love survivalist shows, mm. and I, I was very intrigued by the premise of you know a female Lord of the Flies. You know, would what would happen if females were stranded in, on an island in the yeah. same way that males were? Would would the same patterns of you know dominance, anarchy, and uh, patriarchy reproduce themselves? Mm. And I was really interested in that, but there was almost no survivalist emphasis at all. No, but in this but in even, this opening, you know, I, I'd pilot. even I'd even be okay if it was just them stranded there with you know, minimal survivalist stuff and a good rapport, but they haven't even got much of a rapport with each other. Like everything comes back to conflict, to crisis, to, I just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a brand of teen film that I don't like that much. And Mm. to be fair, when I was a teenager, I didn't especially like either. Just the kind of heightened emotional register of the whole. That I like as well. I mean, I think I I like that. I mean, I think that teen horror is that it's the kind of, it's a sulky solipsism Mm. that at the time I didn't really respond to. And I don't, you know, I don't as much now. Yeah. um, This is an interesting play by, by Amazon. So mm. this is Amazon's first specifically YA, Mm. um, I suppose, TV series. Mm. And it it is, it has got quite a, quite a bit of critical acclaim Mm. as well as popular acclaim as Mm. well. So it's already been renewed for second Mm. season. And this is, you know, 
Amazon's, I suppose, bold foray into the, mm. the YA space, otherwise traditionally or hitherto dominated by Netflix. And so, it's the kind of thing you can imagine as a YA novel. Is it based on a novel, I wonder? It's, well... It's got, a, it's got that vibe to it, yes. doesn't it? I just, I just didn't feel it... I feel really ambivalent because there was a lot I liked about it. I think it's the kind of series I'd probably watch one more episode and just give it a go. Like I'm, I'm not really in, but I'm not exactly out. I'd, I'd send out feelers for a second episode. I'd hope the second episode would in, in involve a lot more island-based stuff. Yes. And, you know, you know I love my topography. I love my drone <laughs> shots. But with, with a desert island story, the topography of the island is a part of it. There weren't many drone shots in no, this. <laughs> no, there should be more about exploring the landscape, right? Like that should be... I don't know whether you're going to get that. I mean, it, it, and that's another reason why... I mean, it just felt like the landscape was virtual. It felt like it was a simulation. It didn't feel like this was an actual real landscape the characters mm. would be traversing or yeah. exploring, which took me took me out of it just that little bit yeah. more as well. You'll have to tell me how it was because I am a hard out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, look, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a hard out, but in terms of what it could have been, look, you know, I mean, compared to Babysitter's Club, you know, like that was a series about female <laughs> yeah, friendship. the characters in Babysitter's Club were really endearing. Endearing, yeah. And, you know, it didn't. it left room for, you know, for trauma and for conflict but just the attitude and the sulkiness and the solipsism up front um wasn't massively my kind of thing so you're on the fence i'm on the fence all right on to our next series number three well billy you know how much we love our true crime absolutely love it and netflix in its generosity and beneficence keeps churning it out netflix content factory is really high on true crime it's almost getting to a point where you have like a like primary, secondary, and tertiary true crime. There's <laughs> yeah. so much of it. There is so much. It's incredible. There is so much, and it, and you do notice it often is in that top ten as well. So yep. it's it's highly prominent. So mm. our next series is actually a rather than our standard, you know, true crime, murder, manslaughter, missing person yep. cases. This one's actually a sexual assault case mm. and a sexual assault a accusation. A fam um, quite a famous one. Yes, absolutely. Iconic. So this this series uh, called Room Two Eight O Six subtitled The Accusation, mm. is about... I wasn't sure. So that was... Yeah. That was the title of the whole series, right? Yeah. At first I thought that was the episode. <laughs> it was a little confusing. I, I got yeah. confused. I got confused. <laughs> the high... Yeah. That's more common in, in, lit, in books, I know. true crime books, yeah. than it is in, exactly. in true crime series. So I guess they had to really foreground the fact that it was only an accusation yep. because there was never That's a conviction in this. It's a libelous thing. Yep. Uh, so it's a four-part series uh, about the sexual assault case levelled against... Uh, French politician Dominique Strauss-Kahn, yep. or DSK, DSK, in 2011. So a bit of background for those who are not familiar with this case. I just realised when I was writing my notes about it, I wrote down DCE. <laughs> it's not about Daily Cherry Evans, Manly Seagulls. Ooh, careful. Halfback, that's, that's not who we're talking about. I don't know why Maybe about previous Manly players. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, not, uh, yeah I, I don't know why I wrote that down. I might have been watching football we did it. <laughs> so DSK was the... Uh, the former uh, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, so a major political player, and also the, the I suppose, heir apparent to be uh, the presidential candidate for the Socialist they, Party. They describe him as what, like the financial czar of the world. Yes, that's yep. right. One of the one of the ten most powerful men yep. in the world. Yep. And the fact that they said he was the eighth or ninth most powerful, I'm like... I want that list. I know, I know. I was like, what's, that's, what's your ranking? Where'd that, you come from? That's a big difference. Eighth or ninth. That's a big yeah. difference. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, so he was he was forced to resign, obviously, after being accused of sexually assaulting mm. his housekeeper, um, Nafisitu uh, Diallo, who was a housekeeper at the Softel Hotel in New York. Mm. So this was the, really the height of his political career. Yeah. And... He was considered such a likely presidential candidate. There was a lot of conspiracy theories that were floating around about whether this was a, a political hit job or whether the, that was the accuser had ulterior motives. That was something. I mean, not so much the accuser having, but that was something I wondered was there some element of conspiracy. I mean, that that, that certainly seems what the pilot may be asking you to think, at least the way in which it it presents him as so singular in his kind of socialist politics and his popularity that. It raises a question of conspiracy. Yes. I thought. So this is actually, this is a French production yep. primarily. A lot of it is in the French language, but yep. it, there are a lot of English language mm. excerpts as well because obviously this is a crime that, mm. you know, although the crime didn't cross borders, it involved a lot of international players. Absolutely, so yeah. DSK was, you know, charged, convicted, or charged, I should say charged, <laughs> in, uh, well, actually, was he charged? Mm. Um, DSK was 
was arrested in New York. DCE was just stepping into the origin frame at the time back in Australia. <laughs> you doing, doing a sequel in the, DSK in DCE. The, in, in the Manly Harbs. <laughs> so, so, uh, so he was, a, he was arrested in, um, in New York. Mm. His accuser was a, a maid who was you know, a permanent resident of America, but who came from Guinea. And it's quite, it's quite striking having her talking heads in the interview as well. It is. So you, you cut between... You cut between footage of him and his career. That's basically the structure, right? You have footage of yes. him and his career. There's no first-hand information from him in this episode. And discussions with uh, the woman, the hotel security guard, and uh, representative of the NYPD. Yes. It seems Th- like. This is a really, I think, uh, interesting documentary. It's mm-hmm. wading into very fraught territory yeah, I agree. In, terms of, in terms of the true crime. This is probably the most hot-button issue, really. Yep. In true crime at the moment, mm. or in in crime really yep. itself, with sexual assault, how do you prove it? And you know, also, you know, do you side with the accuser or the accused? What happens to the presumption of innocence? What happens when there might be ulterior motives on the part of the accuser? And, and also, also, how to how to how, do, how does law enforcement deal with it in some ways? And also, well? I think partly because you know something happened with the Kavanaugh case, where you have situations that up until relatively recently were not seen as crimes. You know, I don't yes. mean they weren't crimes; they were criminal, but they were swept under the rug. I mean, this this—it's kind of an interesting formal challenge. I think your interesting, you know, conceptual challenge to this documentary because what it really comes down to is an accusation. Yes. And an accusation that does seem very plausible given his history, but still an accusation. And trying to spin a drama out of that and trying to spin a television series out of that I think is quite challenging. So, I mean, you know, you think of like a regular true crime series where a lot of it is about circumstance, about space, about time, about modus operandi. I mean, to some extent, there is a bit of a history of Dominic Strauss-Kahn. I mean, let's talk about that in a moment. I didn't find that that convincing. But really, when, when all of it revolves around an accusation, you know, it's you know I think it takes a really great documentary to spin that into something that's televisually compelling and I, I didn't really think this was I think there, I thought there was a lot of filler I, I thought you know, most of this pilot was dedicated to his backstory which is really important like yes. it, it's important to understand how he's positioned financially and politically um, and it is also important to have a sense of his personal life but I thought there was a lot of padding about that and I a thought, lot of talking heads yeah and I thought the padding was a little bit a little bit sanctimonious like you know there was stuff about how he'd committed adultery and, you know, he'd had relationships with women and, you know, that stuff doesn't necessarily an assaulter make. So I just thought there was something a little bit tabloidy about the way in which it represented his personal life. I actually believed the woman, but I still thought the way in which it presented him didn't necessarily add much to it. And just, it felt like a way, it felt like the series was searching for a way to make this scenario dramatically compelling. I mean, it seemed like what happened happened so quickly at the hotel. It was, it happened, there was, you know, she complained, security came, it was over in a matter of minutes. I just, I just thought that it didn't, it didn't really work visually. It's the kind of thing that would maybe be more interesting to read an article about, like a New York Times article. I agree. I I completely agree with you. I I think what's interesting about some of the talking heads Mm. is, I mean, they they're drawn from a variety of different mm. sources. They're, they're people who know him well. They're also mm. people who are contemptuous of mm. him. I think what's quite remarkable is how unenlightened a lot of the French talking heads are about sexual assault and the difference between seduction and 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 sexual assault. I, and there's there's a lot of I agree. exculpatory you know um, information in there and and you know a lot of a lot of passing off his behaviour as if it's kind of it's it's oh it's it's French it's yeah, you know, it's part of the libertine tradition it's very different you don't understand our cultural mores here and certainly know? the Americans like the Americans come off as much more liberal mm. in this um, and it was interesting like you know watching the hotel security guard like you know like you know, pretty blue collar guy pretty masculine you know, bit macho, looked a bit like a Republican voter in some mm. ways, you know, that, that vibe, but he was unequivocally on the side of the victim. Mm. So it's like it shows how things have changed. No, I, I agree. I mean, but at the same time, I thought there was just, you know, that was also just a certain scrambling from the, the French characters to protect their own yes. as well. So I, even even that, yeah, it was interesting. Like it was interesting as a kind of litmus test about how the discourse has changed to some extent and, you know, even change in the time since this happened. I just... I just kind of felt like a lot of it played more like a biography of him, but like it was like it was it was neither fish nor fowl. Like it, the biography was kind of a bit ambling and meandering without 
the crime to centre it, but it didn't really illuminate the crime that much anyway. Mm. So I, I appreciate it. Did you, do you think, like, at the Sofitel, the hotel, there could have been a little bit more reconstruction? Like, I didn't have a very yes. clear sense of what happened. No. I forensically. And I don't mean lascivious detail, but just, you know... Where the room was, where yeah. she was positioned, the routine, who else was around. Like I didn't. The room itself is constructed as a bit of a black box, and yeah. maybe that is part of the the crime here as well. But and maybe yeah. maybe they just didn't offer them access to it as well. There's a lot yes. of exterior shots. No reconstructions. Screen. No, no reconstructions no. of what actually happened. No. Maybe because it was too traumatic or too, you know, unkind or maybe defamatory to DSK in some ways. But, yeah, but, and um, but you know, like. And no, no kind of visual recon, like no kind of you know, like it doesn't have to be an acted reconstruction, but no visual diagrams or anything like. Yes, so you, know, you, like you only it, see you see there's a lot of scenes with you know panning into the door, mm. and then it never goes beyond the door into the room itself. And every you know. single time, like every other try I've seen DCE score, they always go back and rewatch it. And, sorry, I'm getting confused. I'm getting confused. <laughs> you want the automatic replay? <laughs> I'm getting confused. Yeah, I'm getting you want, confused. You want to refer to the bunker? Yeah, exactly. But you know, it didn't. It didn't like I didn't have any sense of where the crime took place. I didn't no. have any sense of the place. I didn't have any sense. I didn't have any sense of the crime scene. No. Which is a really important part of the genre of no. true crime. No. And, I, and you know, obviously part of the rationale for doing it visually yes. is to visualise and conceptualise and spatialise the crime scene. So like I, that I thought was actually something that was a problem with the pilot. I think where this, this series sees strength is when it focuses on what happens in the aftermath. Of Absolutely. the accusation. Absolutely. And there's a couple of really great insights into the way law enforcement work in New York, especially in dealing with celebrities. A, a great term that I've heard... Uh, the perp walk. Yep, absolutely. That's <laughs> the great. The perp walk is where, you know, they take a high profile um, accused and, you know, you know, uh, inform the media about where and when they're going to be transferring him to the police station. And that's what they... That's in remember with OJ that part of the reason that OJ got away in the Bronco was that they negotiated a deal to avoid the perp walk. Yes. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting what you say because I wonder whether this is, you know, one of those series where really by no fault of its own but by just by virtue of the story, the pilot by definition can't give you an authentic sense of what it's going to be about or can't give you the best of the series because the series is all about the aftermath. Yes. So the pilot is almost like the premise here. Yes. Like it's established the premise and really... Because I can see that would be really interesting, like how the, how the media deal with it, how he deals with it, how the hotel deals with it. How the investigators and on how the, the part and the investigators police investigators, you know, in investigating mm. the, the accuser and ultimately... The forensic, um, the forensic yeah. valency of that yeah. accusation, basically. And ultimately, you know, dropping... You know, child, or not... not Pressing, going ahead with pressing charges, which is quite a dramatic and, step to take. But so. that, and that interesting double result, like not pressing charges, but also it ending, basically ending his legitimacy as well. So, yes. like at some level. So, for that reason, maybe it's a hard series to judge based on the pilot alone. Yes. But I, I still did think, just in terms of just certain basics, like in terms of pacing, in terms of selection, and in terms of the crime scene, I thought this was pretty pretty second or third rate true crime, I have to say. Not many drone shots in this one. Not many drone shots. And look, you know, I guess, you know, I find the, the politics of it all really interesting. For the most part, I tend to believe, you know, nearly always that women in this case. So, like, I'm interested in the politics of how that all plays out. But what I'm drawn to in true crime tends to be more compressed experiences of space and time. Yes. Vanishings. You know, like you know, cr- cr- crimes that, that that make a place resonate mm. with a kind of and I think this memory. Could, I think to some extent this, this could have been about a, that. But interestingly, I guess when it takes place in a hotel, the hotel has a vested interest in completely erasing any, you know, like the kind of the psychic yeah. traces of the crime yes. on a place is precisely what a hotel yes. is going to want to erase. One one really compelling, um, I suppose, element of this mm. this crime in the pilot was that they they show security footage of two of the security that guards was the best bit. employed by the hotel celebrating after the accusation is made. So yeah. uh, the conspiracy angle, I think, is very intriguing, probably the most intriguing and angle. They sh- and they show footage of her before she goes up to the room, and just that stuff is very mm. haunting, like, you know, the kind of circumstances around it. Yeah, I agree. That was by far and away... I mean, it made me realize... You've seen American... Um, Murder the family next door. Yes. So that that's that's a series that that's for those who haven't seen it's a next Netflix film about a, a crime a family crime that it all told through um, stock footage um, through and that that perfectly captures like the psychic traces of a crime right like mm. it, that's so that that's everything that makes true crime powerful mm. whereas here you f- you feel like the hotel has is only going to allow a limited. 
But you know, a good maybe a good kind of counterpoint too is like Unsolved Mysteries, the Ray Rivera one. Like that's a you know that all revolves around one building, a hotel, and they, although they can't get inside, they manage to really capture its geography from the outside. Mm. Whereas they don't do the same with the hotel here. No, they don't. I mean, it doesn't feel like a Netflix series, right? It feels like a French series. Yes, that's imported, right. Yes, imported. Yes. It doesn't have Netflix. any of the hallmarks of the it. drone shots. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about drone shots. <laughs> we're talking about, but that's the you most. Didn't get Im- your drone fix. But that's the most important <laughs> bit. That's the most important bit. <laughs> <laughs> you want more spider cam yep. for you know DCE exactly you know. yeah I mean you know like there's so much that like there's so much a DCE does like in time and space and like the synergy the with dummies, the rest of, the, the, re- kicks. the rest of the manly where spine. were the dummies I know yeah exactly so <laughs> well interestingly enough I, I've actually seen the the entirety of oh, this right. series so how does it hold up partly because the I found the the crime itself so compelling oh. and the, the the various angles and. Mm. So intriguing in some ways. I don't think this pilot was necessarily these the strongest episode of this. That makes this series. sense in I think, terms of how the story. I think the unfolds. story develops and becomes more interesting as it as it goes along. I agree with you. I don't think it is very televisual. No, or certainly not cinematic. A bit at all. like Macmillions in that respect. I think it's better than Macmillions. But very it's, it's, heavily reliant on talking heads yep. as well. But uh, do you think he did it? DSK did it. I I don't know. Like I mean, you know, there is a trust issue. Like that time when you know he said he got the ball down and it turned out like it was obvious that there were like three storm players beneath him and he, he could see he hadn't got it to the turf sorry i'm getting confused again i'm getting confused again um, I, yeah. it was a ref's call mate yeah yeah it was a, yeah but like that's why we need better touch judges do you know what I mean? Like, we need, we need better, more professional touch judges in footy. Um, I don't know. Look, I don't know enough about it. I'm, I'm on the fence. Um, part of me is inclined to continue watching it. Part of me is inclined to read about it in mm. more detail. Like, I'm, I'm not sure. It's like McMillions. I'm not sure that this is the, the medium I need to see mm. it through. But, yeah, interesting story. Having seen the entirety of it, mm. I have to say, I genuinely do not know whether he did it or didn't do it. Okay. Um, I obviously was in just because I, I found the, yeah. the the story intriguing. Story enough. is really but, intriguing. But I, I do here. I don't think it is necessarily the the strongest you know, exponent of of the true crime. It's certainly not the Netflix style true no. crime. And as we know, I'm deep in the true crime rabbit hole. I, I, I watch <laughs> true crime all the time. I've got to be selective. You'll watch. I've got to be selective. You'll watch anything, really. Yeah, I will. So I've got to be. I've got to be selective. I mean, That's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, on to our archive corner for this week. This is a series you've all been waiting for. Steve Van Zandt in Lilyhammer. <laughs> it's what I've always wanted. Uh, you know, what if the Sopranos, but Norway. Norway, exactly. Um, interestingly, I didn't know this. This was actually branded as the first time Netflix offered exclusive content. Yeah. So it came out in early 2012. So this is pre, I guess this is pre House of Cards. Just, it is. And pre Orange is a New Black. So it's kind of the original Netflix series. And... You, but you, not commissioned or made by Netflix. Not commissioned or made by Netflix, no. But the first time it was available to an American audience. So, look, the plot, Andrew just, probably, Andrew just giving you the plot. Um, it's basically, what if we took Steve Van Zandt's character, Syl, from The Sopranos, <laughs> made him exactly the same, same mannerisms, same facial expressions, same delivery, same personality... And put him in Norway, <laughs> but it's not him. Yeah, it's just, not just him. for copyright purposes, it <laughs> is not him. It's not so. Um, he's the, and he's it, not called Sill in this. He's called Frank, Frank Tagliano. Frank the, Frank the Fixer. So it's interesting. Like, I mean, the the this is a very economical pilot, which I appreciated, given um, you know how laborious a lot of kind of post quality pilots can be. In the first five minutes, um, he le- I mean, it's a bit like a compressed version of like some like it hot. In the first five minutes, he realised he's got to get out of Dodge. He's got to get out of town, and he tells his handlers, his FBI handlers, he wants to go to Lily, the FBI. He wants yeah. to go to Lilyhammer because he once watched the Why? Winter Olympics there, and he's loved it ever since. I think I, economical is a, is a charitable way of putting this, yeah, this premise. It's pretty, I, another way of describing it is it's really lazy. Yeah, yeah. which which I always like. I, 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 I like I like for a lazy a, show for a sitcom. This is this has uh, got to be in you know one out of five for effort in terms of absolutely. ingenuity of premise, and, and, and it ha- it has a sitcom vibe. I mean, it, it just, it feels so continuous with The Sopranos, it yeah. almost doesn't matter. Like, I feel like yeah. the character arrives with him. And it's funny, like, this almost felt to me... Have you have you seen all of The Sopranos? Uh, I haven't seen okay. season six, but don't spoil The no. Sopranos for our, our listeners, Billy. No, no, I'm not going <laughs> to... No, that's not what I was going to do. Um, you don't, monster. Don't make it about me. Um, but 
you know, those of you, I'm sure all of you have seen The Sopranos. It's amazing you'd have a pilot club Don't podcast. Don't stop believing. It's, it's amazing you'd have a television <laughs> podcast and never have finished The Sopranos. That, I don't quite get that. It's a passive-aggressive um, corner. <laughs> but um, well, the last scene of The Sopranos has a lot of really eccentric plot trajectories where you follow the individual characters as their stories come to a close. So I was going to say, this could almost be an episode mm. in the final scene of The Sopranos. Seal, Seal goes to Norway. Yeah. Seal ends up in Norway. It could so, be a spin-off series. So it feels so, I guess... Part you know part of the reason why it's so lazy or so economical is it just it just feels so damn continuous with the Sopranos that we get it we get the world and we have to, nothing more is needed. So. This, could, this could almost be the Frasier yeah. to the Sopranos Cheers. Did in you some say ways. it's Frasier? 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 <laughs> what? Well, in that analogy, I think holds. Yes, I like Seinfeld. <laughs> Frasier. Don't flex on me with that extra syllable. <laughs> um, yeah, but like it's you know and. That, that's literally it. Um, guy gets shot. FBI comes. I've always wanted to go to Lilyhammer because of the Olympics. <laughs> and then he goes, I think we're going to hear a lot about those Olympics. Uh, I, I suspect we I think we those will. Olympics are going to be a really I big suspect. a really big touchstone. Um, I also sense that Steve Van Zandt was trying to do something different with his accent. It didn't work. <laughs> I feel like he was trying to do something slightly different from Sill, a little bit less glottal, a little bit more front of mouth. But that's, yeah. And so basically his character is just seal from the sopranos but he's been thinking about lily hammer his whole life mm, mm. ever since he saw those olympics yes. <laughs> ever he's since... been obsessed ever... and and when when the fbi agents say oh look you know we can we can put you anywhere mm. you know like anywhere tropical anywhere. paradise hawaii <laughs> it's like no i want to go to lily hammer i want to like, snow what <laughs> so he's got he's got a hankering for norway and basically as soon as he gets there he just gets right into it. He does. Teaches young Norwegian men how to be respect, respectful. Yeah. He gets in with the it's local wooing, townspeople. Wooing young Norwegian lasses. I, I do have a little bit of a full disclosure. Um, whenever we suggest Archive Corner, we have to make sure it's available. And actually, amazingly, this series is not available on any Australian platform, which is crazy because there was a time there when it was omniscient. Like yes. it was a, and this is a series I really associate with DVD stores. Because it, it, it was just, so if you think about this as like the first exclusive Netflix series, mm. just before House of Cards, it's just before Orange is a New Black, it's about a year and a half before Netflix became available in Australia. It's just that tail end of DVD watching or when DVD and streaming are side by side. So I remember always seeing it in my local DVD store, mm. always thinking I should hire it. So that's weird that it's no longer as available yeah. in Australia. Um, but also, um, you know, so yeah. So we meant to we meant to um, check it's available. I did a very cursory check and saw it was available on Daily Motion. What I didn't realise about till halfway through is that the version we were watching had no subtitles. Well, the, the image was, re- was reversed. reversed. You couldn't maximise it. So and look, there's a hell of a lot of Norwegian in it. <laughs> At first, I was in the Norwegian, I was like, "Is that English?" And there's so there's so much of it. At first, yeah. I was like, "Oh, this is wacky." They're speaking Norwegian. He doesn't get it. I was like, then I was like, "There's so much Norwegian here. There's got to be subtitles. We're not seeing. We're missing out on subtitles." I think somewhere. to be fair, part of that is is the flaw of the the suggester and the platform but i think also part of the flaw is with the tv series itself because these characters very well know that steve van sant's character does not speak norwegian but yet they continue to persist in speaking norwegian to but him. i like this going for cultural sensitivity around norwegians <laughs> well what i think I they're like doing that. is you, you don't think you want everyone to speak english <laughs> is that what you want well, yes, yes in my want, world. Yes, but I okay. understand why that they seems did. Very, that seems very entitled to me. <laughs> I understand why they did. This was originally mm-hmm. a Norwegian production. Yep. So that's why they had to artificially basically say yeah, yeah, everything yeah. in Norwegian once yeah, yeah, yeah. and then English a second Which time. Which just adds a completely new level of absurdity. Yes. It's like the series itself. Like, I, I want to see a series about the series. Yes. Like, whoever came up with this <laughs> idea of, like, Steve Van Zandt. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the actual, yeah, the production history and I suppose seeing Steve Van Zandt shooting this in mm. Lilyhammer itself would have been hilarious. Mm. Fish out of water and, drama. And should we say that... It's Perhaps bit... more interesting than the actual show itself, dare I say. It. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? So, you know, he, he gets to Lilyhammer, he teaches, he kind of, he, you know, meets a few crazy local characters. What, do you think it's going to be a full-blown... Cr- I mean, and it's suggested that, that the... That the town sheriff um, has some sense that he's, you know, she gets a phone call at the end which suggests she's got a sense of what his real identity is. What's his new name? Like Lance Henriksen or something? Something, some Norwegian last name. Something completely implausible. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I wonder, is it going to go in a full-blown crime direction? Is it going to be like a northern exposure, like, mm. you know... It's a strange town? melange of genres, at, isn't it? At times it almost had a western vibe. Yes. I thought, like, it's like, you know, he arrives at the end of the line, the last, you know, the last town on the railway line, last town on the route. There's all these kind of scenes where he squares off with people, these shots. Like, it's got a... It's almost like a western vibe at times. Yeah. So I was like, I was quite... I was quite uncertain from the pilot mm. what was going to happen. Yeah. For, for me, at least... The, the vibe partly it was going for felt was a bit like a little bit like Twin Peaks in some ways, like a wacky town. Well, that, that's one of the three options. Right? So like, so I was like small town wackiness, western, or mm. it'd be awesome if it went full crime. Yes, well, it might <laughs> it just do. goes nuts. But it, it certainly doesn't certainly yeah. doesn't suggest that in the pilot. Yeah. But to me, at least, uh, what's interesting is uh, this looks like a kind of class, classic, you know, fish out of water drama. Mm. Although mm. in this case, it would be fish fish in an ice flow or something. Fish in ice flow, yeah, <laughs> but. Normally in those cases, the person, say, the northern exposure narrative, mm. the, the person who's sent to this foreign, mm. far-off country or quirky town is a surrogate for the the audience. Mm. They're a straight person. They're a foil mm. for the wackiness around them. But in this case, Steve Van Sant's character himself is a stereotype. He's even, he's even wackier. He's even wackier. Which makes sense with it being like almost like a Norwegian production. Yes. Like, he's the exotic one. Yes. All I can but, think... But they're pretty, they're pretty weird and exotic as well. So, to me, at least, this is like... This was so self-consciously quirky. quirky. It was just quirk after quirk. All I can think of is that, you know, you're, he, he is so continuous with, with that Sopranos character that it's meant to normalise him and domesticate him a little bit. Yes. And maybe if, if you watch the last two seasons, that will become <laughs> more apparent. Um, what, what were some of your favourite fish out of water scenes? One of mine was like when he sees like a... A um like a sheep's head by the side of the road. Yes. He's like, is there a hit on me? And then a woman's like, no, we eat those here. He's like, huh, oh, funny, <laughs> funny old world. Yeah, yeah. It almost feels like the whole series yeah. we conceived for that very scene. Yeah, see, yeah exactly. It's like, it's like, oh, that's in, the best one. That's yeah, the best like, scene, really. Yeah, like in my country, that means there's a hit on me. No, no, here we eat the sheep. <laughs> I mean, apart from that, really, the more you know. <laughs> Apart from that, really, there's no other there's no other really local quirks, are there? No, um, it's just it. You know, it feels like you know a lot of it is just him learning the language. Yeah, it's like it's like watching. <laughs> he tries to bribe a public official, but I'm yeah. pretty sure that's illegal in, in America too. Yeah, exactly. So, so he yeah. he starts a bar. They, they go, look. I'm going to be honest. Um, about the last 15 minutes, I couldn't really figure out what's happening. They go hunting. Yeah, it they was go very dark in the dark, and the the quality of the the show wasn't. That, well, quality no. of the, this copy that we were watching was that was great. happening at all. Um, <laughs> but like, there's a lot of Norwegian in there too. But a lot of it just feels like watching, like if Phil from The Sopranos did like a six week immersion language course in Norwegian. <laughs> that's basically there's a lot of the, the language is doing a lot of heavy lifting here. That's and right. let's be honest, the language sounds hilarious. <laughs> the language sounds hilarious. But like, does it? Does it? Like that's it. Does it pass the pub test? Does it pass the pub test exactly? <laughs> well, I have to say, I found this a little bit drit. Yeah. Yep. What does that mean? Oh, you don't know? No, I don't. No. Oh, it's Norwegian. <laughs> Look it up. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, that was good. That was good. I walked right into that. Um, yeah, look, I, I, look, I'll be honest. Like, I want to say, like, it's obviously not good, right? We, we can agree that the show is it's not, not good. It's not good. But I kind of know myself, and I feel like this is exactly the kind of show I'm going to come crawling back to. <laughs> It's, I it's can see very undemanding. There's a huge hit in Norway. Apparently, you know, a quarter of Norway watched it. Yeah, so, it broke records. You know. um, yeah, and it's it's right up there with um, yeah, also summer. <laughs> is this your favourite Norwegian you know TV what? show? Yeah, yeah. It's look. I think what you said is true about it. Like it, it is that low level sitcom energy. I yeah. just love my low energy shows. I want to think I have the strength and the dignity not to watch all of this, <laughs> but I. <laughs> And look, I gotta say, the Sopranos thing is a joke, but it's kind of fun to watch it after the Sopranos. Like it's like yeah. it's like a weird, a weird parallel universe where the fantasy of more Sopranos happens in some limited kind of way. I think if you get into it, it could be quite cozy. Yeah, I mean the landscapes are good, and yeah. you know the characters could be endearing. I mean, Steve Van Zandt is weird though because like you know his 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 acting style is incredulous grimace all the time. Yes. So whether he's in Norway or America. It's... He seems equally surprised <laughs> yes. and equally unimpressed. So it just... He doesn't really change his behaviour at all, no, given at it's all. Norway. No. He, just, he whips out the, the, the revolver. He's you know, assaulting young hoodlums. Like, and and you know, they, make it, they make a big deal about snow. And I'm like, you know, this Italian gangster type, I'm pretty sure he's from a part of America where there's snow. <laughs> yeah. You know, like New Jersey, yeah. New York. Like, that's a big thing. It's like snow. Yeah. It's like, well, you've come from America. Like, yeah. that seems like it's... It's probably not quite as cold, but uh. it's certainly pretty snowy. Uh. 
So, so you, you say you'll maybe have better sense than to revisit, but maybe, maybe just. I may maybe. have started the second episode already. Is kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> I may have. You know, I, I love my like sea change, Twin Peaks. Well, I'm not going to put Twin Peaks in this boat. That's insulting. But Northern Exposure, I I do love. I do love her. I, I can see you googling Norwegian word for good on your phone, by the way. So you found this a little flink. It was incredibly flink. Yeah. Look, it was. I've, I've seen flinkier. It's not the flinkiest, but it's it's up there. It's it's a little flink. All right. Well, for me, my review is drit. Okay. Um, well, yeah. I think it's that's it's a bit of a false flink drit dichotomy there. I don't think it's total drit, but. You know, it's a little to- flink in there. It's not total flink either. Yeah, <laughs> getting your flink on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, I'm um, I mean, who who am I kidding? I'm going to watch the whole thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just my kind of low quality, <laughs> low energy, idiotic, cozy, I, domestic. I've been I've been out in a few shows uh, this week, but yes, this is another one that okay. that I will not be re- revisiting. I'll but I'm glad I saw it. Yeah, I'm uh, glad I saw it's it. A good, it's a good thing to tell people you've seen. It is. Yeah. It is. and it a is. fun one just to recommend. Just a good name. Yeah, Lily Hammer. <laughs> It epitomises, I suppose, this this weird era we're in in TV, yep. where we have you know uh, multinational production deals, mm. and you know Steve Van Sant goes to Lilyhammer, and you know it gets released on Netflix. And I, 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 I wonder whether, like, it feels like it's the same moment as like that show Wallander, where like Kenneth Branagh played like a Finnish detective or something, yes, or yes. Danish detective. <laughs> it's like it's like basically like Scandi Noir meets American quality television. Yes, and the results are hilarious. <laughs> So speaking of um, archive stuff, hit me. What's your what's All your right. choice coming so up? So my choice, as you know, we've been going back in time. Back in time, you know, I like way it. back in time. You've been going, going being classical, seventies, eighties. I love it. Love it. Sixties, uh, last case, and the last one Brilliant. was the early sixties, nineteen sixty-four. We're going back even further now. Wow. To the nineteen fifties, and this is wow. this is where this is where I will this, end my. This is my where the, this is where the television purists. The television <laughs> back purist. in time, and um, the show we're going to watch uh, for the next archive club is Alfred Hitchcock presents. Brilliant, fantastic. Yeah. I love doing crossovers with film. Yes. And, you know, it's funny, like, I remember, like, a while back I was looking up his filmography and, like, he directed a significant number of episodes of that. Like, yes. it's almost like in terms of, I might be exaggerating a bit, but in terms of hours, Alfred Hitchcock yes. Presents takes up as much space his as regular televisual films. output was, was quite enormous. So, so it's and is, is the pilot episode directed by him? I, I Look, I, I need to do my research, oh, yeah, so do. we don't yet you have really, that department. You, you, but, really, you really do. But... Yeah. Um, I know that a lot of it he does he did have at least a, mm. a big imprint on it. He mm. was a showrunner in uh, before that that term really almost existed in some ways. And it was apparently a huge impact on Lilyhammer. Had a huge <laughs> it's a huge influence on Lilyhammer. So it's a nice kind of that's interesting. That's that's a really interesting. I mean, I I, I want I. I've never seen it, and I picture it being like kind of Twilight Zone, like episodic. Exactly, it's a show I've had not mm. really. I've never seen. I don't know anyone else who's seen it. Mm. Um, I, I've seen a lot of, you know, I've seen that it is quite acclaimed. It was quite Name groundbreaking yeah. in its way, and you know, for a Hitchcock completist, I think that's it's fantastic. You, you've got to you've got to do it. So that's a great, the great choice. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, see right you. back in time. Next episode. See you there. All right. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>